Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. I am one of your hosts, Ms. Malmoy. She sure is. And I'm the other host, Mr. Craigers. He sure is. And tonight, for episode 109, given the lovely spring prom season, we're going to do a dive into the iconic, much-loved 1976 classic Carrie. 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 Directed by Brian De Palma, based Mm -hmm. on the equally iconic, equally beloved and classic novel by Stephen King. Equally beloved. Um, just reminding me that I uh, didn't put in my notes about the novel, but that's okay. I've got them here. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering about, I was like, are we not doing notes about the novel? So I just like didn't put anything in. But we, we will get into the novel and, and all that we'll stuff. So There's some some good tidbits about um, the history of that of, of that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, right? his first novel and mm-hmm. the first adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Yes. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to do a read, watch, listen, check in. Um, yeah. What have, what have you been up to? Um, so since we last uh, recorded for grave encounters, um, I've got like one major thing in sort of like every medium Oh. that I wanted to talk about. I was like, this okay. is sort of nice, nice and tight. So uh, for film, uh, I saw Evil Dead Rise. Oh, that's exciting. It's honestly one of those things where I'm like, I might need to wait for this to come out on on <laughs> streaming because it's just... <laughs> it is very... Um, no one can see what I'm doing right now, but yeah. it's, <laughs> it's icky. Yeah. <laughs> and it's gnarly um but i quite liked it mm-hmm. i uh i I'd, I'd, I'd be down for another one from from this crew nice. um i know the 2013 one i like, enjoyed the 2013 one yeah i did too and i liked what they were doing i think i like this one a bit more because mm-hmm. it i don't know maybe it was just like the apartment building was a really cool setting right the uh, covid sort of yeah and it felt really fresh Mm -hmm. like the 2013 one was cool and updated and they did like lots of crazy stuff with that too but it was also still like in a cabin you know it was still right it was still ultimately the same movie just with sort of updated effects yeah and this felt different and fun while still being kind of everything we all want from an evil dead movie so nice but yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, for television, I started watching um, the. Uh, oh, I'm watching it through Prime, but I believe it originally streams on MGM Plus now. Um, from Which, what the where the fuck is it? when did MGM Plus become a? Uh, that's what I said. Because I was watching the first season, and then I was like, "Wait, where's the second season? It's on MGM Plus. What the hell is that?" But anyway. I have wanted to watch that, but the MGM Plus thing has been prohibitory. (laughs) It's like, I can't, I'm not doing another. I'm not doing this again. I'm not. Maybe when the second season is done, I'll do like a free trial. So then I can, Mm -hmm. but anyway, 
but the first season is on prime um and it's fun and creepy and kind of um you know if you were a lost fan like mm-hmm. early lost that sort of mystery box kind of storytelling mm-hmm. uh, which is something i feel like i'm like yeah when have we had, like when was the last time we had like a good solid like mystery box show the um, leftovers the leftovers but that that's been that was 20 yeah i guess that's still a long time ago at this point so yeah that's good and creepy and i have no idea what's going on but i'm into it (laughs) great (laughs) uh for books i read t kingfisher's what moves the dead Mm -hmm. oh i just read that too you sure did i saw it (laughs) yeah i liked it yeah i enjoyed it too i thought it was very i mean mushrooms are very in right now fungi in general very Mm -hmm. hip for speculative and horror um media um yeah, I thought it was a very interesting take on Paul the House of Usher um yeah. and it also it's like it'll be fun to sort of compare to whatever Flanagan ends up doing this fall yeah I thought the atmosphere in particular was like dead on mm-hmm. uh, re- really enhanced by sort of the hyping up of the fungi mm-hmm. uh, and it was interesting to see like in the author's note Kingfisher was talking about like well like fungi get mentioned a lot in the original story mm-hmm. um, so she was like I'm gonna take that and run with it yeah I thought that was just that was cool yeah um and then finally uh there's a podcast I've been listening to um a horror audio drama podcast called The White Vault okay um, and it's this. The, I'm coming to it a little bit late because I think the podcast is done, um, but I'm starting at the beginning. And it's it starts with this small crew um, that's sent to an outpost um, near the Ar- near the North Pole in the Arctic mm-hmm. Circle, um, and they end up getting trapped there during a storm. And they pick up a mysterious and very creepy broadcast. Um, and then tucked away in the back of their sort of auxiliary bunker where they keep all the food they uncover a hatch classic yeah a staircase that goes deep underground and so they go to explore it and then they find something that they probably shouldn't have found and increasingly creepy things start to happen as they are increasingly cut off from the rest of the world. Great. Pretty creepy. Okay. I love a good Arctic. I mean, what was it? The, the terror. Mm-hmm. Um, I love a good creepy Arctic, Arctic thing. With boats. I mean, yes. I mean, like you, the thing is. Right. Awesome. You know, so anything that's like, going in that vein sign me up right so i'm on the second season of the white vault and um things are getting pretty dire but uh yeah if you chatterers anyone out there if you're if you like horror audio dramas um i recommend this one i don't it's not something i've delved into a ton um there's some pretty good ones out out there in the world um 
Yeah. I'm trying to remember the one that I really enjoyed. People were a little bit split on how it ended, and I've heard um, various rumors about, like, they're reviving it, they're not reviving it, because it ended in a way that was like there could be more. Um, I'm going to see if I can remember what it's called, and at some point during this I might shout the name of it. But it was yeah. it was sort of it was a woman, you know, the 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 conceit is like, oh, she's doing a podcast about a thing and we're listening to it. Um and her podcast was about um like music and it was specifically looking at like the devil's tritone that you hear people talk about, that like creepy this like true. dissonant chord. Um yeah. I'm gonna see what it was called and be like, of course. But um, I've I really enjoyed it. I know a lot of people were divided on how it ended, but interesting. I really enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah, I've I've listened to a few here and there, or like ones that are on like the creepier side of things. Um, but I'm definitely I'm very impressed with like the the quality of the White Vault. So I'm like mm-hmm. looking for like more and well and um. Uh, crap what was it called the um limetown was limetown yeah was very good one. um yeah that was good I, I know i did not make up this podcast there's one i listened to a while back oh the horror of dolores roach that was okay. um kind of ran out of steam in its second season but then they they wrapped it up okay mm-hmm. um, i'm trying to think of some other ones i've listened to in the past well but anyway um what have you been up to well i as we mentioned i read um what moves the dead i finally climbed my way to the top of the wait list and picked up ascension from the library okay so i haven't started it yet but um gonna gonna get into that at some point soon um i actually watched a old movie on shutter recently um that i had never watched before called clear cut clear cut i don't know clear cut so it came out in like 90 i want to say like 92 1991 um it's on shutter so and i really recommend it it was it's about um this guy who's this he's it's a canadian production and it's this like lawyer this like white lawyer from toronto who's representing a um indigenous tribe in their lawsuit against a like milling company that's clear-cutting the um the 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 forest for uh you know the mill to like generate power to the towns yada yada and um basically they lose their like court case that's like how it opens is there's like he's running to like go talk to the to his clients while they're like in a scuffle with the police because the police are clearing out activists because they're going in to do um the deforestation and um graham green plays this guy um named arthur who's like an activist in the tribe who ends up kidnapping both the lawyer and the guy who runs the mill and takes them into the wilderness and basically like things just get more and more like unhinged and he gets more and more like violent and like 
basically they have these, you know, his like sort of like episodes of like doing like crazy shit to these people are like um, punctuated by him like talking about like, you know, like you can, you know, like the, the, you know, what's actually happening here and, you know, the obvious plight of indigenous people, but then also like, you know, this lawyer's like a bleeding heart white liberal who like says one thing, but obviously benefits from, from, you know, these, you know, the, these companies coming in and doing this stuff. And it's just really, really well done and really interesting. And, you know, I was actually looking at it and Graham Greene said it was his favorite film that he like ever did. Um, I just, I was like, really, I was like, this is like, cause I, afterwards I like went online to be like, how is this received? Because I thought this was really good, but I want to make sure I'm like not doing like something stupid, but like, it was, it was, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's on Shutter. It, I found it on their, their collection. That's like their like current recommendations or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so highly recommend. Very interesting. I just went and edited it to my watch list on Letterboxd. That sounds really yeah. good. Yeah, it was very good. Um, and it was like the kind of thing where it's like it's not over the top violent, but when there is violence, it like it makes sense and it's serving a purpose and that sort of thing. Um, so very good, like that. Um, and then yeah, I don't I don't think I've I've gone too deep into too much since I did just start rewatching the Insidiouses in preparation for the Red Door. Um, so it's it's interesting to watch their sort of decline in quality as we, yeah. we move along. But I I actually watched the the last key for the first time because I never actually saw that one. I only saw that one in theaters. I don't remember it a ton, but yeah, it was bizarre. It was like it was one of those things where it's like this. It almost could have been something that was like using IP. But it was like an original concept. Like if you just change the names of characters, it could be right. its own movie as opposed to like part of like the insidious universe. Yeah. But um Is Lynn Shay still in that one? She is. She's like that's the first one, or I guess that's the second one that's just her, because she's also in the, the third one. But yeah, it's her um what's his face from Saw and then what's his face from Fargo season two. Oh, just chilling. Yeah. Uh her two her two buddies uh who run her yeah. little her little operation. Um but yeah, I think I'm sure I'm forgetting something. I cannot find the name of this podcast. Um <laughs> it doesn't exist. But um and now there's the new podcast about you yes. thinking there was a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like the new uh the new like weird horror. Yeah. <laughs> getting in my own head, but um I did also watch for what it's worth um Oh crap, what was it called? Um Warning Do Not Play. It's mm. a Korean found it's not even found, it uses elements of found footage, but it's mostly not found footage. Um, yeah, that was about like this urban legend film that supposedly a ghost made um, that the yeah. main character is trying to find because she like can't come up with ideas for like the screenplay that she was like contracted to write or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting until it stopped being, until it just got like sort of incomprehensible with what they were trying to do. But, mm-hmm. you know. You'll have that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I am. That's that's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that being said, is it is it time to to dive into more horror, more past and and foundational? I think it is. Yeah. I think it's time to go to the prom. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah, let's uh let's talk Carrie. So 1976's Carrie. Yeah. When did you first see Carrie? And when you- I was thinking about this all day because I was like, when did I first sit down and watch Carrie? Because it's one of those things where it's like you just have that image burned in your brain of like her with the blood and Sissy Spacek with like, crazy eyes and and all that stuff. Because I I distinctly remember watching The Shining, like seeing scenes from The Shining for the first time when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really like I can't place specifically where I first saw the like. You know, yeah. I just remember having that image in my in my brain as a kid and being like, oh God, like thinking like this movie was like some like, like, obviously it is scary. But, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my God, she's like, it's, it's like a gory, like it's something crazy is happening. Um, But I think, you know, I eventually sat down to, to watch it at some point in my teens. I didn't um actually read the book until probably the last five eight years now like i've i read it fairly recently um and i actually really obviously i read the book after i had seen the movie but um at that point but um i i really liked the book like normally it's kind of, sometimes it's kind of hard for me to read a book after i've seen the movie especially something like carrie where it's like you you're so aware of it and like i've seen it so much that it's like how much more enriching could it be at that point but um it is it's it's a really well done book um yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um i feel like as is i think the case a lot of times um i'm very similar i was also like having a moment where i was like okay you know yeah the imagery from carrie was there before sitting down and watching the film start to finish right mm-hmm. just because it's so iconic and you see it in montages and in merchandise and this that and the other um but i think somewhere probably around you know middle schoolish is probably mm-hmm. when i first actually saw the film my guess is that it was you know when i was having an amc fear fest afternoon yeah. or and watched it there um the book i actually uh can tell you exactly because i um have kept a log of my reading since 2009 and uh i think i've mentioned a couple times on past episodes where we've talked about stephen king Mm -hmm. i actually came to his books late um i grew up watching 
adaptations of his work, but not really reading his stuff until like college. Um, so I read Carrie uh, in February of 2012. Okay. So yeah, so you're not, I mean, I feel like occasionally it does happen where, because you like to read your Stephen King books with the exception of like some of the newer ones, like a lot of the classics you like to sort of read in the order that they yeah published because there are there is on occasion books where i've like oh yeah like i read that before you did or, or yeah something like that yeah and so this was basically like right at the time where i was like getting super into king because i had read um uh i think the first king i actually read was full dark no stars mm-hmm. bella collection and then i did 11 and on writing and then I was kind of like, all right, now I'm, I'm going to go back and like do chronologically unless there's new stuff and then I can read the new stuff. And so mm-hmm. obviously when you're going chronological, you got to start with Carrie. Right. And um, yeah, I like it a lot. I remember liking it a lot. It's obviously a quick read. It's not particularly long. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it was Stephen King's first novel. Um, mm-hmm. It was also something that was almost didn't see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And so as much as we obviously give credit to the man himself, we also have to give credit to uh, his wife, Tabitha King, who rescued Carrie from um, the flames, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe the story goes was that he, she took it out of the trash can or... Yeah. Um, she she basically convinced him to um to go back to it and um yeah because he he wrote it and then immediately was like this isn't gonna like i don't think i can do anything with this and shelved it and went to go write salem's lot and she was like oh hold on (laughs) right yeah hold on i think there's something here um Mm -hmm. you you got to keep plugging away at this um and and so, and so he did, and it became his debut novel. Um, it was pretty positively received across the board. Um, there are some differences between the novel and the film that um, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but I think something that surprises a lot of people when they actually pick up Carrie um is that it's not um, not written in like a traditional sort of it's very epistolary yeah Um, and I don't I don't I don't know for sure I can't remember but I don't think I knew that when I picked it up and I I was I was surprised to to see that and I really it works really well in the in the book I mean like I it would be so interesting like it's impossible today to find somebody who has like no like cultural awareness I think of Carrie in America to be able to say like read this not knowing what happens and how it ends and you know how does it feel like what is it you know what is that experience like just because of the way because it's written entirely like you have these snippets of like newspaper articles alluding to this thing that you know is going to happen at some point and right like we don't know exactly survivors. what that was yeah, yeah. We, we know that there are survivors there's some sort of tragedy we're not sure what happened there um it's all very uh, he's like you know he's stepping into the gothic tradition with that mm-hmm. you know um 
Frankenstein, Dracula. Yeah. And, and sort of like putting his own spin on it, but also probably like some level like of, um, comfort as like a you know beginning writer and it's like Mm -hmm. well I had to read all of these epistolary you know things I kind of know how they work um and so it's it's interesting and I think it surprises a lot of people because there's really no shades of that framing device in the film right um it's like that's abandoned and the story is just sort of which you know, makes sense for the film, I think. You know, I think in film, it's kind of harder to achieve. I mean, obviously, the way you do that is through found footage. Um, mm-hmm. Or you do the thing where you sort of open at the end, and then you have a sort of like three months earlier pop up on the, which, you know, sometimes is good, sometimes is kind of cheap. Um, I think in this situation, um, just having the straight linear story made sense. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, obviously the novel was and, um, remains one of Stephen King's, um, biggest hits and is considered, um, one of his best works. Uh, people dive into, um, the themes of ostracization that King gets into, um, the themes of, um, getting revenge versus getting vengeance and which does Carrie actually achieve? Um, which I think the movie sort of like plays out as well. Um, Carrie was based in part off of um, two girls that Stephen King went to high school with um, who came from a um, a relatively uh, poor family and they were um, bullied and ridiculed for for their family's status. Um, so he sort of like drew on them to create um, this timid, ostracized, shy little creature with something way deeper inside of her going mm-hmm. on. That's scary. Um, and having read obviously not everything that Stephen King has written, but most of the heavy hitters, uh, I do think Carrie is like top five for him. Yeah. I mean, she's so different than the type of character he would go on to sort of like become known for, I think later. And I mean, even starting with Salem's lot, you know, like that type of, um, you know, male, yeah, um, the- either like aspiring writer or jaded writer, you know, former teacher, you know, like shades of essentially himself and, you know, like writing what he knows in that regard. Like Carrie just is so different from those other protagonists that kind of became like the staple king protagonist. Um, and I find it very interesting. Yeah, she's very atypical for a, a king main character. Um and there's been a lot said and written about over the years about how he writes women and when he is successful and when he's not so successful um, and how often he does it and how often he doesn't do it. And she definitely feels like an outlier. And I think sometimes we forget um, that like, she's she's one of his most like real, like mm-hmm. coming off 
age alive creations. Yeah. Agreed. So, um, the novel's a success. Um, I, eventually, uh, I think about like a year or so after it had, it had been published, a friend of uh, director Brian De Palma uh, gives him a copy of the book and says he should really read it. De Palma does. He really likes it. And he immediately wants to make it his next film project. So he goes to his agent. He's like, hey, will you find out which studio has the rights to carry? The agent comes back and says, no one does. <laughs> uh, but a couple of them are looking for it and they're thinking about making offers, but they're not sure. So De Palma says, well, let them know that the next thing I'm going to do is carry. So eventually uh, it's United Artists that buys the film rights to carry for their Red Bank label. Uh, for twenty five hundred bucks, that's how much Steven was paid. Yeah, I know. Like, it's obviously worth a little bit more due to inflation, but it's not, you know, that much more. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about that now. Um, although Stephen King has talked about, he was just like, I was thrilled, mm -hmm. you know, um, as it's pretty rare for a debut. A debut novel to be snapped up at all yeah and so like we said that was the first um stephen king story to be purchased and adapted united artists set the budget at 1.6 million they raised it by another um 200 grand although this was considered really cheap at the time um in the mid 70s particularly for a horror film because horror had been doing really well at the box office so it's not exactly super clear why they um, didn't give it a huge budget. Maybe because it was like an untested sort of like right. property. Like obviously King was getting a lot of attention for Carrie and, and Salem's Lot came out soon after that. But like he wasn't quite Stephen King yet. Right. Yeah, because they, they spelled his name wrong in the trailer. Yeah. Um, they spelled Stephen with a V. Instead of a PH. Yeah. So. But uh, Lawrence C. Cohen comes on. He's hired as the screenwriter. He writes two drafts. And then um, United Artists is like, cool, great. Let's get to filming. Essentially, uh, the second draft was the shooting script. Although there were a few scenes that ended up getting cut because of those um, budget constraints we were talking about. This was Cohen's first major screenwriting gig, although he would go on to do a lot of other Stephen King adaptations, um, like the 1990 miniseries for It, the Tommyknockers, um, the 2013 version of Carrie, and then um, a couple other credits. He wrote Peter Straub's Ghost Story, and then weirdly, he did the film adaptation of South Pacific. Sure. Yeah, it's like his one outlier. Um, he also famously wrote the, uh, musical adaptation of Carrie, which premiered on Broadway in 1988 to universally negative reviews and closed after only five performances. 
It is considered the biggest flop in Broadway history and one of the worst musicals ever staged. Which, like, if you're gonna do it, like, rather than have it sort of, like, do a mediocre flame out, out, I feel like, you know, at least you gotta go for, like, the big, like, this is the worst thing anyone's ever put on a Broadway stage. Yeah. It was me. I did it. It was me. I. Um, so he's like been really attached to Carrie kind of throughout his career, like two adaptations and the musical. Um, I think he really identifies with, with this material. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about, uh, casting and the the process that went around figuring out who was going to be in this movie. Sure. So literally like every appropriately aged woman white woman in Hollywood, it seems like from the list, um, that was breathing, uh, read for the role of Carrie. It's so interesting. Like, this was such a hot role. And, you know, we'll get into, like, Sissy Spacek being, like, obsessed with it. And it's so interesting considering, like, nobody knew who Stephen King was. Like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I gotta be in the new Stephen King movie. But everyone auditioned for this. Um, some standouts uh, included... Um, De Palma's future wife, Nancy Allen, um, Melanie Griffith, Margot Kidder, Farrah Fawcett, Angela, Angelica Huston, Jessica Lange, Linda Blair, Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, and Betsy Slade, um, who was De Palma's first choice. Um, Now, I think we all saw this. Yeah. (laughs) Even though we didn't exist. It's like, you know, being in Glass Onion, a non-stop story. We also all auditioned for Carrie. We did. At some point in 1976. Um, Sissy Spacek um, was convinced to audition by her husband, uh, production designer Jack Fisk. And she was sort of like, I don't know if put off or felt competitive about the fact that she was not the first choice um, when she started reading and stuff. So she basically sat down one night, read the entire book, like in one like couple hours sitting, um, was determined that she was going to play this part. So for her callback, she rubbed Vaseline in her hair to like make it look kind of gross and she didn't shower and she wore a cut up sailor dress that her mother had given her in seventh grade. And she did all this because people thought she was too pretty to play the part. And she was basically proving that she could sort of, you know, embody Carrie and she, you know, she did something right because she won the part, obviously. Yeah, yeah. what a freak. <laughs> yeah. Um, now there's been this like long-standing rumor in Hollywood because George Lucas and Brian De Palma actually held joint auditions for this and Star Wars. Um, mm. And the rumor was that Carrie Fisher was originally cast as Carrie and Sissy Spacek was cast as Princess Leia, but they switched roles because Carrie Fisher was like refused to do the nude scenes. And while it is true that they both did read for both roles, um, Fisher has said, like, she's like, I would be, I love doing nudity. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I would have done it. They didn't ask me. <laughs> um, among other shared auditioners was Amy Irving, who read for Princess Leia, and William Cat, who read for Luke Skywalker, and both ultimately ended up in Carrie. Curious alternate universe there, maybe. I know. Well, I'm also like, did like, was, did Mark Hamill read for anyone in Carrie? <laughs> um, yeah, did he read for 
Tommy or Billy. <laughs> Harrison Ford was there to be like the scene partner for everyone. So like, was he doing anything goofy while he was there? Like, you know, it's very, it's very goofy. It's one of those sort of funny Hollywood lore moments where it was like, also, why were you holding joint? On, what? Why? Right, like, why was that? It was just because De Palma and Lucas were like friends. Yeah, you know? like, hey, like, want to do auditions and then, like, get lunch together, like... Yeah, and then get high, probably, like... Which, I guess, maybe, you know, something about it works, because they both produced, respectively, like, two of the, you know, greatest films of all time from right. that shared audition. Shared audition, so... Um, but, yeah, so, to prepare for the role, Sissy Spacek, uh, like, went up to the cast a few days before, like, everything was gonna get started and she basically said to them like hey really excited to work with you guys like this is gonna be great after we're all done i swear i'm gonna hang out with you and we're gonna party and it's gonna be awesome but from this point on i'm just not gonna talk to you guys or really um like you know socialize in any way because she wanted to embody isolating herself um so right. she didn't talk to anyone. She dressed, she put in her dressing room, it was covered with like religious iconography. And um, she was like sort of closely studying uh, Gustave Doré's illustrated Bible, which is like kind of the traditional, when you think of Bible, like the black and white Bible pictures, um, like Satan, you know, Lucifer or whatever falling, that's kind of his, his style. Um, but she, she was going through that, looking at all the pictures, and she really um, based Carrie's posture on the posture of people in these illustrations who are being stoned uh, for transgressions, um, which is interesting. Um, yeah. It worked. I mean, mm -hmm. um, oh, award-nominated performance, as we'll find out. Yeah. Um, the other fun thing is this is John Travolta's first major film role. Um, yeah. For anyone who forgets, as I do consistently, that he is in this movie. <laughs> 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 um, it's because he doesn't show up for like a half hour into the movie. That's that's kind of a weird thing about his character. I feel like in a movie now he would be introduced if only quickly. Yeah. Like earlier than he is but anyway <laughs> yeah so he actually auditioned for the role of billy like during his lunch break while he was filming welcome back cotter um which was also kind of his first like major foray into being like a known actor but he was still in costume when he did this which is kind of funny but um stephen king would later say that um his performance was like second to SpaceX, his favorite um, in the movie. Like he said, he, John Travolta played the way that he wished he had written Billy. Interesting. Um, yeah, which he described as funny and a little bit insane. I mean, and there's something to that. Um, we can talk a little about this later, because like, I think Travolta played um, he dialed up the humor a bit more mm -hmm. um for reasons but yeah. <laughs> i i feel like i get what what king's talking about yeah um so yeah so they started um they started filming uh the original director do you know what happened here with the original director of photography i couldn't find out exactly 
what happened, but um, there was there was some sort of disagreement. There was some sort of conflict between De Palma and um, Isidore Mankowski, who was the original um, DP. And the, I, I saw something that said that there it was like to the point where there was like a storm off offset. And then I saw something that it was like, no, it was a bit more like civilized. They just like agreed to like separate from this project. Um, but either way, uh, Mankowski was replaced by Mario Toshi, um, the DP of The Killing Kind. Um, and that is who we have to thank um, for all of the um, really sort of beautiful photography that goes on in Carrie. And there's quite a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, SpaceX husband, Jack Bisk, uh, was also hired as the art director. They're still married to this day. I always like to check with with actors. Too. <laughs> like who's still together? They are. They have children as well. Grown children who I think are like older than Craig and I at this point. But, right. Um yeah, but so they filmed in and around Santa Paula in California over the course of fifty days. Although the film takes place in Ohio, North Carolina. I saw both. Yeah. The book takes place in Maine, obviously. The show, or the show, the movie takes place somewhere else. Yeah, the book takes place in Maine, in Chamberlain, I think. One mm -hmm. of King's um, several fictional towns um, that he's created over his oeuvre. Um, the film... You're right. I feel like we are given conflicting sort of evidence of where we are yeah it's like i've seen some people say ohio i've seen north carolina ohio feels more likely to me just because yeah. i feel like there's a lot of random midwest horror like that north carolina feels specific <laughs> midwest something to this mm -hmm. i don't even think i don't even think the film confirms that like where it's supposed to be yeah, or that even that it's like the town of Chamberlain, or like you know, we don't even get the name of the town. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was filmed in California for you know, at the end of the day. Um, and as most things, it is funny to watch California sometimes double as like, you yeah, know, places that are clearly not California. Um, but some fun bits and pieces about some shots in here um, that I was able to find um the shower scene the opening shower scene where she's like i have my period and freaking out kind of the other famous scene in the movie um de paula told spacek like her sort of like um direction from him was to act as if she had like just been hit by like a truck basically and was just realizing that she had been hit by a truck and her husband actually as a child was hit like run over by a car while looking at christmas lights like admiring christmas lights on a neighborhood street i guess so she asked him like oh like what what was that like oh this is digging it basically what he described is then what she like had in her mind while she she went through that scene of like finding the blood and and stuff um so they have a great relationship Oh my gosh. <laughs> so um that's fun. I'm trying to go and I didn't put these in in order, but I'm trying to go in order of like how they appear on the film. Oh, um but um just imagine 
Sissy Spacek with her crazy eyes asking her husband to be like, what was it like when you were hit by the car? Yeah. <laughs> Hope you don't have any like PTSD. Um, but if you do, she wants to know. She um, definitely the scene where Mrs. Collins slaps Chris was required, like, you know, DePaula wanted a real slap to get the real as opposed to like a, you know, just sort of yeah. famous fake slap. And they did almost 30 takes <gasps> um, before they oh got the one. I'd be crying too. <laughs> yeah. So, and also during that scene, while she's like chewing out the students, De Palma stood off screen and was like whispering hurtful things to Amy Irving to try and get like a genuine look of like I... sadness yeah, and upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then so for the the various bits of the prom scene, the prom scene itself was filmed over two weeks and there was a total of 35 takes. I feel like there had to have been more, but I guess there's a lot of sort of tracking shots in there maybe. Um, yeah, there, there is, um, you know, as we're going up the rope and then as we're like, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it, oh my God, I forgot how, how long she's like looking at the like and piecing it together and i'm like this is just this is horror like i think that carrie is the epitome of like a well-done tragedy where it's that kind of thing where every time you sit down to watch it or read it or, or what have you you're like maybe this time mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's never it never and happens like different once has it been this time yeah <laughs> um, still gets pulled yeah but um, the prom scene was filmed over the course of two weeks. Um, for the sort of dizzying shot while they're dancing, they achieved that by having um, the two of them uh, on a like platform that was spinning one way, and then mm -hmm. they spun around with the camera like at increasing speeds. Um, so that's kind of cool, kind of fun. This is definitely the right word. Yeah. Yeah, like it's very dizzying the the way that 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 like it just because it starts out you're like oh this is nice and then like it just doesn't stop and like it's faster and faster and yeah um, it's kind of the first sort of sequence I feel like I mean obviously you know the entire time that something is going to go wrong but that's the first time you sort of really feel that um something, we're not something bad's going down we're going to be in a bad situation here yeah. Um, Betty Buckley's terrified reaction to that swinging, like, blackboard thing was genuine, because it was unclear where it was going to land. <laughs> there was a hope of how it would land. Like, you can see they actually cut out, like, very quickly, if you yeah, look, there's a cut out of where it was supposed to be, but it was not clear that it was going to do, like, what... So, everyone was kind of like, well, like, see what happens. <laughs> and action! <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's fun. Um, PJ Soul's eardrum was actually burst as a result of being sprayed with a fire hose, and she lost hearing for six months afterwards. Damn. Um, okay, now I think, but that sounds. I hate ear shit. Ears are so weird. That's rough. Did you see? I like went up to my ear. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as we mentioned, some things were cut for budget. Um, a lot of the things that did end up getting cut were the destruction scenes, because in the book, and if you've seen the 2013 version, you know, like, she goes out and she just, like, raises the, the town. Um, they had planned to film the gas station explosion, 
which didn't happen and then like a rain of like stones mm-hmm. um but the mechanism for that like broke so i think they just they, they just decided to scrap the whole um thing and just have her like leave the school and go home um which you know i think it still works and you know seeing the, the 2013 product where it was all achieved by you know cgi i'm i'm fine with you know yeah settling for the broken practical effects yeah um and I think there's this element of like, so like okay in the in the film we obviously see what she does to everyone in the school, everyone at prom, right? Mm-hmm. And she goes home, and everything that happens at the house happens at the house, and it feels really like good, you know, <laughs> that bad good, right? That like, yeah, that like good for her, but it's like midsummer where you're like. No one is okay. She is not okay, but good for her. Right. She is not okay. And like objectively, this is bad, but subjectively, like go carry. Yeah. Um, but then like I think the element of her like destroying the entire town, like mm-hmm. people weren't even at prom, like then it kind of I think it becomes a little bit harder to right. grant carry her good for her. And I get that it's sort of the idea that the, the whole, her, this whole town has treated her poorly mm-hmm. her life, and she's finally just had it. Mm-hmm. But it definitely, it makes it more difficult, I think, to sympathize when she destroys everything. Right. And it is even, I mean, I think it's even tough in the gym when like, you know, like Miss Collins doesn't get out and like, um, the insinuation I think is that um what's his face dies when the bucket hits him it's what's his name tommy Tommy. yeah i bet when he gets knocked out but in the in the 2013 i can't remember in the book but in the 2013 version they like made it that like he they like cracks his skull or something um yeah but in this one he just sort of like goes down and then we just don't see him again I believe I'm checking real quick about the book. Tommy's knocked unconscious by one of the buckets and dies. Okay. <laughs> Tommy's down. Tommy's out. <laughs> down for the count. Down for the count. Anyway, but yeah, so like just, you know, like just there are people in the crowd who like, um, you know, who are also like sort of like. Because, you know, like, bystanders, like, obviously nobody, like, went out of their way to treat her well or to, like, help her. Um, But it is, like, you know, interesting to watch the way it's portrayed here with her, like, imagining them laughing at her when they're not actually. Like, nobody, there's, like, one person who's laughing and everyone else is, like, not about that. Isn't it... um... Uh, when the 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 laughing starts, or when she thinks the laughing is starting, um, isn't it just isn't it just PJ Souls character? Yeah, that, she's the like, only one laughing, and she's like turning to other people to try and get them to laugh with her, and they're just like not having it. And then at that point, she starts like there's this like sort of kaleidoscope um, effect on the camera where she imagines everyone like teachers, right. you know, just everyone laughing at her that kind of sets it off. But um. Yeah, that and then in that scene, that shot of her and that positioning of her was based off this painting by this guy named Gustave Moreau called The Study of Lady Macbeth. And if you look at them side by side, like it is very much, it looks um, like identical. It's pretty cool. 
um, but obviously famous shot. Um, and then we actually learned this last little tidbit at the Horror Museum in Salem, that in the final scene um, where, you know, we're at the grave and um, everything's idyllic and, and chill, um, that was actually Sissy Spacek's actual arm. She wanted to do the um, stunt herself. She, like, said in an interview, I've always done my hand and footwork. <laughs> um, <laughs> So she um she so she did it herself and um this shot would actually prove to be like one of the movie's most iconic scares. Um Stephen King when he saw an early like he saw the film early in its run, he recalled that he turned to his wife after he watched the audience's reaction and said to her, This is going to be big. Mm-hmm. Um and then Sissy Spacek actually like would sneak into theaters specifically towards the end of the movie to watch people's reactions to the to the lunge um because she enjoyed seeing their reactions it has become pretty iconic um in a movie that already has you know quite a bit of iconography to it um i don't think I'm trying again, I'm trying to remember because you know you catch this and that, you're familiar with the imagery. I don't think when I, the first time I actually saw it, I knew that there was that jump scare at the end. And I'm pretty sure it got me. Um, yeah, I I feel like the the arm reaching out was something I was aware of later. Mm-hmm. Like before. Like, I don't think I knew, like, when it happened, but I was aware of that, like, being a thing. Like, the image of the hand through, the bloody hand through the the rocks and stuff. Um, I don't know if, I'm sure, I mean, I'm I'm gettable with jump scares. (laughs) The other thing I love about that ending sequence that I just think is kind of a cool fact is that, like, um, to achieve the dreamlike quality, they filmed it in reverse. Yeah, you can actually see cars driving backwards if you look yeah. in the background. Just kind of funny and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and raises a David Lynch move. To, very much so. Yeah. Uh, and such an interesting note to end on because there's definitely this question of like, what does this mean that Sue is dreaming this? Right. Is it a guilt thing? Is it, you know, is it fear is it some is it something else what's going on there um just yeah interesting played and her you know actual mom playing uh playing movie mom as well in that scene oh yeah 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 which is fun yeah a little detail yeah tell us about the the music. Yes, yes. Okay. I was like, where are we? Uh, so <laughs> Bernard Herrmann, um, who had collaborated with De Palma on his movie Sisters in 72, um, as well as uh, with Obsession in 76 and wrote the scores for those. And who uh, many people that know their horror sort of um, music cues and scores will know him for writing um, the score from Psycho. Uh, he um, was also hired for Carrie, but unfortunately he passed away before um, 
production was finished on the movie. And so um, Pino Gennaggio finished the score um, working off of uh, what Herman had written. You can catch snippets of the Psycho soundtrack um, that had been put in not intentionally. It looks like just as placeholders kind of, mm -hmm. as, oh, we're going to come back to this or we're going to expand on this. Um, but then they just sort of ended up staying. I think I always notice them during the the gym sequence. Yeah. Um, when she's and the, the the mirror when she breaks the mirror. The mirror when she, that's yeah. a big one. That's another one too. Um, but yeah, Carrie um definitely sort of um it's not the most iconic score for a horror movie, but like it's recognizable. Yeah. Um most people like it's kind of like that thing you know i feel like a lot of people have to be like is this this is from carrie right you know i think uh it would be a good one for um like a 500 maybe not a 500 because that's too obvious but somewhere in oscar's jeopardy ah! and see how many people think it's yeah think it's I'm psycho <laughs> That would be. Yeah. Colleen's gonna know, but that's fine as long as Colleen keeps it to herself. Let's make a secret little note over here. And, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and so um, yeah, so this combo score, you know, it has its own place in horror canon, and um, Dinagio would uh, actually work really well with De Palma, and he would score seven more films with him. So now our special effects were handled by uh, Gregory M. Auer and Ken uh, Pipeyot. Auer, I know, would also go on to do special effects with Star Wars. So I think he was part of like- he was the, at the joint audition. He was at the joint auditions, presumably. He, so also he, he also read for Carrie. He also read for Carrie. Actually, he, he was uh, the first choice for Princess Leia. Yeah. And <laughs> He wouldn't sleep with George Lucas, so and he wouldn't sleep with George Lucas, and he was like, "How about I just do special effects?" Yeah. Um, but so, um, yeah, so they were the team that sort of headed up special effects uh, on Carrie. Famously, uh, as we know from Scream, they use corn syrup. Yes, that is correct. They weren't uh, the only ones, but <laughs> yeah, the fake blood was, you know, obviously a big part of this um both in the opening sequence um when carrie has her first period and then of course later on with the pig's blood we also have the effects of um you know all the destruction that happens at yeah. prom we've got the knife effects there's mm -hmm. there's, there's a good handful in here no, that and I, I love i remember re-watching this and just thinking i love practical effects like it's so fun to watch how they they come up with this stuff like just and even thinking about because i saw the 2013 carry like once i think um although it weirdly is on tv a lot like i will sometimes run into it on tv um, i feel like i feel like it has its defenders i felt very yeah. i appreciate the newer like the updated casting and like that sort of thing that's fine the cgi you know mass destruction of the town kind of loses any sort of impact for me like that's why i think part of 
you know, keeping the the destruction with just the school and her house is like actually a little bit more powerful just because it feels very localized and very personal. Yeah. And I feel like in the 2013 one, like whether it was the way the new screenplay was written or Kimberly Pierce directed it or Chloe Grace Moritz performed it, but like Harry becomes much more of like, I am intentionally hurting and destroying. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, Carrie hurts and destroys, but it's more of a reaction. Right. Cause it's almost sad because she just then goes home and like puts yeah. on her pajamas it's and like wants sad. to just be comforted by her mom. By her mom. Yeah. And yeah. she and she's just sad and she doesn't really understand what has been happening to her. And she's hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's what hurt people do when they're hurt again hurt people hurt people right they say well, the 13 one is just like i am intentionally gonna fuck you up yeah it's, it's a little like whoa yeah no um i am gonna bust a lot of bubbles here by pointing out um and this is something that always bugs the shit out of me nobody's first period right looks it's- like this um it's dramatic. It's fine. You know, whatever. I get it. But like Sansa waking up in the middle, you know, the, with that giant stain oh on God. her mattress, Carrie just, you know, gushing red blood at like, that's not, it's, it's much grosser than that the first time. I'm going to tell you all that right now. It's not, it's not, you know, there's no like romantic imagery with it. There's no sort of like, right. you know, dramatic red spot you know, the, the the red, the scarlet letter, you know, it's it's kind of gross the first time. Um, so, but who knows, maybe Carrie had that and this was like her first real period. Um, yeah, and, the, and it's been brought up before, you yeah. know, like, that is not an accurate depiction yeah. uh, you know, of, of a woman's first period, but hey, I mean, the fact that it was depicted at all. Um, yeah, no, and I mean, I don't hate, you know, I'm you know, as we'll get into, like, I'm down for what this movie is is saying about, like, you know, the way we respond as a society to periods. But it's just always so funny to me that it's like, like in everything, because it's like there are women on set. Like, who, like, why, why are we letting this happen? But, um, and this is also, if you're gonna have a movie that I would say is justified in doing the dramatic rendition this is this is the one yeah 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 and there's there's something about this movie where everything is just a bit like hyped and just a bit magnified Mm -hmm. Um, like i do love when they shout pulling it up like yeah (laughs) the hell Mean Girls were weird. <laughs> but they do it like as if it's like a chant they all know. Like, oh yeah, like plug it up. <laughs> you know the chant. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. They waste so many. <laughs> Those things are expensive. Throwing that shit at Carrie. Pick it back yeah. up. Start in your locker. Yeah. That in the lengths um they go to for um vengeance nancy allen and john travolta like rather than like we're just gonna be dicks and like slash her tires like all right we're going to 
rig the vote. <laughs> We're vote. going to get in on the prom committee, make sure she's elected. Well, and how about we're gonna go to a local farm, kill a pig, slaughter a pig. I think it's actually several pigs. Yeah, that's a lot of blood. Like what? We're going to we're going to put the pig's blood on the top. We're going to do a rigging system that will allow us to pull a rope. That's like it's just nuts. Right. It's like absolutely nuts. Like the the levels to which like um they go. Yeah, it's insane. It is insane. <laughs> 70s bullies, I'm telling you. Yeah, oh my god. Like, that's the thing. Like, while seeing this, and like, you know, Stephen King is my main window into like pre 90s bullies. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what sort of like, like, all his bullies are like, you know, like, what's his face in, um, in it? Like, carving his name. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just, they had some bullies were were scary back then scary yeah yeah and he he does he knows how to write a bully that's for sure yeah anyway yeah. all right so let's see where are we now? do a bit of a roll call a bit of a roll call yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so in billing order, we begin, of course, uh, with uh, starring, with the starring credit, Sissy Spacek as Carrie White. Um, we've talked a little bit, obviously, um, about both Spacek and the character thus far. Um, I think when you were you were talking before about, you know, she was kind of digging into her husband's trauma and De Palma had given her, you know, that direction about, as if you were hit by a truck and da 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 and um what i had thought to say was that i think one of the reasons her performance is so effective and what i love so much about it is the physicality too right it. the body the posture the gait yes. um because there's not a ton of dialogue that we get from carrie because she's she's pretty shy um mm-hmm. that's part of it um and and so it is a lot of physical body acting um that is important to like convincingly portray this character and i think she does it really really well yeah i'd be curious to know exactly how many lines she has um because mm. you did you, yeah like you like you said there is not a ton of like I can, you can't point to a ton of lines and you can't point to a ton of long lines like right. it's a lot of like you know very sh- like she gives short one word answers to people and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think sort of like the most we hear her speak or the longest we hear her speak is when she's with Tommy at prom, yeah. and they're at the table together, and that's you know right she's sort of finally letting her guard down a little bit or coming out of her shell or however we might want to think about it she's feeling positive she's starting to feel kind of safe and then of course that is another element that adds to the tragedy of what happens to her on stage yeah all right and then after spacing we get a triple billing and so we'll go through one at a time uh amy irving as sue snell um 
Sue, really interesting character. Yeah. And also, I think, um, a good example of King writing women. Um, yeah. That yeah, she's get- like interesting, like like complex. Um, with sort she- of like again, weird, complicated. Like, say you're sorry. Like this weird complex. (laughs) And that's the one thing with Sue, right? Like she takes it like she takes on this mission that she almost has to like save Carrie from herself. Yeah. To make up for what happened in the shower. Um because that's like the first interesting thing about Sue, right? She participates in the bullying, but then she's really the only one who feels any sort of remorse for that. or any kind of regret for that. Um, or does she? I mean, that's a thing I feel like I've seen people talk about with her. Does she go through all the trouble of convincing Tommy because she has genuine empathy for Carrie or is it out of guilt? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, a lot of it does feel like it's guilt. Um, but I think towards the end, specifically, she starts to have, at least in this portrayal, like genuine like empathy for her and wants her to be, um, you know, happy because you know, she like went to the prom to see like to make sure everything was going okay. And when she sees what they're you know about to do, she like tries to stop it. Um, even though she sees like Tommy like kiss Carrie, like she doesn't really react to that at all. Like what she's reacting to is like this like you know terrible thing that's about to happen. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. I did see that in the 2012. Um, I guess it was like a revival of the musical because the musical I believe came out earlier than that. Um, the person who played her was Christy Altomer, who you and I saw as oh. Anastasia. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, I can so. see her soon. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. So there's that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think probably her motivations start out more from a place of guilt and then transition into like a genuine sort of empathy um Mm. or feeling yeah well i feel like it's part of like um with tommy as well like the more they get to know carrie the more that it's like oh like you're actually interesting i like you like you're a nice person to be around and yeah and i think there's almost a sense of sadness with sue and tommy that like oh i wish i had gotten to know carrie before today yeah um and I think Sue does really get that heroic moment when she does try to stop what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the beginning of the tragedy when Miss Collins misinterprets Sue's actions yeah. and throws her out of the dance, which of course ultimately saves Sue's life. But, you know, yeah, dooms everyone else. All right, then speaking of sort of like the other um, component of this, we have uh, William Cat as Tommy Ross. Incredible hair. I mean, the hair. The hair, the hair. It's funny, though, because I could, like, now knowing that he read for Luke Skywalker, like, I could see it. Yeah. 
but no, he's good. I mean, like, I, I appreciate like the way that he sort of like in the scene where we're first introduced to him, like there is that moment where he does seem like there is a genuine connection to between him and Carrie. Cause it does seem like there's sort of vulnerability with the poem and that Dick teacher is like making fun of him. <laughs> what the, also what teacher Dick, in the teachers in, in this and in Hocus Pocus, like teachers are just not, um, the teachers are bad, not okay. Bad teachers. But, you know, and Carrie, you know, has a genuine response to it. And I think, like, you see that that kind of really touched him. Um, yeah. I think there's, it's that thing, right? Like, with Tommy, you know, we get the sense that Tommy is popular, that he, I think, I think he's like a jock type, right? They mentioned yeah, him being I think a he, like, he plays, because I, I believe she talks to him, like, after a some sort of sporting practice to be like, yeah. you're asking Carrie White out to, to the prom. Um, right and so there's probably like this element of tommy like you know like anything maybe more sort of like sensitive or scholarly would not be something that like he would be expected to engage in or would maybe feel comfortable sharing and so like having carrie i think genuinely be affected by his poem is like this really beautiful moment for him where he then gets to start opening up and letting his guard down in the way that she has been doing throughout the night. And I think that's really sort of lovely to see that between yeah. the two of them. Um, and once again, just adds another layer to the tragedy of it all. Right. All right. And then we've got Nancy Allen as Chris Hargensen. Um De Palma's future wife. Comedic, comedic levels of villainy, which was the point, I guess, in her, in her portrayal. But um, yeah, it's just like very irredeemable. It's so interesting because I think like where you have these like very like interesting, conflicted female characters in Sue, in Miss Collins, um, in Carrie, like in this, it's just this is truly just your typical like absolute high school bully from like every movie you could imagine um you know yeah and you know we've, we we just talked about king writing good bullies and i think primarily his bullies are male but chris is just as nasty yeah uh, and, and yeah like you said there's there's really not much that's sort of like redeemable or likable about her um and uh, her counterpart in the next triple billing uh, is John Travolta as Billy Nolan. He's good in it. I it's so funny because like, he's so silly, but I think in this it works because he just seems like a dumb henchman. Yeah, like he's just like yeah, sure, I'll do whatever, you know. Right. He's not really thinking. He's he's above it all. He's just any chance to sort of be cruel to someone. He's like yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, henchman is good because there's like when they're in the car together, she says whatever she says. I want you like we're gonna we're gonna fuck up Carrie White. Or fuck something. up Carrie White. He's like who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he even really knows who she is, but he's still just like yeah, sure, whatever. Um. Then we have Betty Buckley as Miss Collins, um, the gym teacher, uh, the girls' gym teacher. She's good. Um, she's no Judy Greer, 
<laughs> I mean, and who is? Um, but no, I mean, she's she's good. I mean, like, she's another... It's so interesting, too, with that character where she talks about, um, you know, what happened, and she's explaining it to the principal, and she's like, yeah, like, I also wanted to just, like, wring Carrie's neck because it was so annoying and dumb, and, like, why don't you know about this and that sort of thing, but, you know, has the, um, you know, compassion to be like, okay, like, something is going on with this girl, um, you know, and it's interesting thinking about her and Sue together, just sort of like trying for the same thing in opposite ways. And, you know, she's kind of like the, the harbinger who's like, this isn't going to go well. Um, obviously, you know, she could not have predicted like in the ways that it doesn't, but, um, you know, I, I found that I was, I always find her character interesting. I do too. I think she's really complicated. Um, you know, like, like you were saying, like, yeah, she, she, there's this like really tender sort of comforting of Carrie in the shower. And then she's telling the principal that she wants to shake her. Um, mm -hmm. How could Carrie be so dumb? And then she's, you know, she's sweet and encouraging and happy for Carrie that um, Tommy Ross has asked her to prom, but then she smacks a student. Yeah. <laughs> I always think it's they did that in the, like they do that in all versions because I'm even like with the updated version I don't think that would fly <laughs> I don't even know if it flew I guess back in the 70s they were still doing like you know the the switches and stuff but like my yeah. god yeah and so it's like you know she's she's very complicated that lots of lots of shades of gray in this movie and and i always wish that you know miss collins and sue would have just talked a little bit more yeah. and realized that like the mission between the two of them was essentially the same yeah because um, i think miss collins doesn't ever really trust sue completely like she's never really sure sue isn't um you know messing with carrie because her sort of judgment based on how sue behaved in the locker room is like it like that for her is what sue um which also feels interesting because sue's trying to get out from you know like again if you take the guilt aspect like sue is trying to escape that like pinning of judgment of like this is a thing you, a bad thing you did and um you know it's gonna define you know you yeah you know the rest of you know well i guess she escapes so less than short life than other people but Right. But it is sort of that thing, like, in Sue's arc of, you know, this idea of, like, does one bad action make you a bad person? You know, does it define mm -hmm. you? If so, how long does it define you for? Um, mm -hmm. What do you have to do to sort of make up for that or erase that? You know, it's very human. Yeah um and then at the end of that triple billing we have pj souls as norma watson um she's sort of like the sidekick bully um she wears a baseball cap to prom for she reasons. did that's like her defining thing in my brain she reminds <laughs> me of what's her face in bob's burgers like the tall or the the, the tall um, one who's the friend of who's like yeah who's like uh yeah but, <laughs> like that's who she that's who she is in my mind yes. um, um yeah pj souls good actress the norma character i think 
pretty Jocelyn-esque. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, then we have Sydney Lace in the next, this is also a triple billing. Sydney Lasik as Mr. Fromm. Um Absolute the dick. Huge dick. What are you doing? Um, but well acted. Mm-hmm. Uh Stefan Girash as Principal Morton. Um, yeah, another hapless you know, calls her Cassie. Um <laughs> and like even like without like Miss Collins has said Carrie like several 15 times, times in to conversation before Carrie comes into the office to like whatever get her like excuse to go home and stuff, whatever. It's just like, dude, <laughs> come on, it's Carrie. And and it's a small town, right? We know that. So also, like, like, I don't know about you, but my principal knew every student's name. Like, he would see us in the hall, and he would recognize you and say, this is your name. I don't expect that of every principal. We had a big class, but come on, dude. Well, that's what I was like. They live in a small town, so there can only be so many people that go to this school. You should probably know the names of all your students. Yeah. All right. Anyway, and then uh, Priscilla Pointer as Eleanor Snell, um, Sue's mother, uh, who has a really funny moment um, where she's like, I'll drink to that, yeah. to uh, <laughs> Mrs. White. And then she's like, oh, shit. Um, yeah. She is the mother of Amy Irving. Who that's right. Plays Sue. That's right. Um, which is sort of fun and interesting. I didn't, did you see like, was that were they cast together was that like i didn't see why it just seemed like maybe they were like your mom's famous do you think she'd want to be in this or you know who knows like it's a very small part i'm sure she was there for like one day to film her like two scenes or whatever i did see a funny tidbit that um at the end when she comes running back in um when sue's screaming she was like genuinely concerned by like how well I guess she was just acting it so well that she was genuinely concerned and she came in and yelled at Amy, but it ended up getting covered over. Um yeah, so like they didn't, you know, they didn't have to refilm it, but um that's funny. That was fun. How about that? Yeah. And then of course, uh someone who we haven't talked about at all yet, the billing order finishes with and Piper Laurie as Margaret White. Yeah. She was another one who played her. I think it was just totally, she's like creepy and scary and upsetting, but she also, uh, you know, we, as we'll get into, a lot of people thought because it was so over the top mm-hmm. that it had to be a comedy. <laughs> um, so, and she was one of them. Um, but, yeah. um, no, she, she did. She did great. She talked about in an interview, you know, afterwards, she was like, you know, I did this, this one scene where I thought I was going like super ham and I was over the top and da 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 da, and I expected everyone maybe to do a little bit of applause after I, you know, we finished the sequence after we finished the take, and everyone on set was just like, oh my God, that was so scary, and then she was like, oh. I may have misinterpreted the script. (laughs) She was, I did see a thing that said that she was having like a lot of fun with playing like what she called the sort of evil witch character. And like between takes, she would just do like maniacal laughter 
like to stay sort of in um the, the the mindset but again she thought it was a comedy so she was like really hamming it up and stuff and right well i mean um, even like, like talk about that cape she wears when she like yeah. into the snow house to like drop off her literature church literature or whatever she's yeah, got geez. yeah um yeah margaret white terrifying villain um mm -hmm. terrifying so um so yeah that that's pretty much the production are there some fun tidbits we may have missed that didn't fit anywhere else in our yeah, so there's a couple um we did mention about the comedy thing basically nancy allen and john travolta thought they were going to be the comic relief so they really just played like dumb henchmen type characters but obviously it like worked out to make them seem like crazy scary villains and um similar thing for piper laurie um, during the three days it took to film the blood sequence, Sissy Spacek refused to wash the blood off of her and slept and ate and didn't shower and was still covered in blood. And even um, I saw that once or twice she had to sleep in her bloody clothes. Um, so commitment to the bit. Truly. Um, more psycho references. Um, it's... They, the name of the high school is Bates High School, and the name of the um, packing place where they go to get the cows is Bates Packing, the cows, where they go for the, the pigs. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, goofily, um, Betty Buckley was only two or three years older than the actors who were playing her students, and <laughs> Eddie McClurge was actually two years older than Betty Buckley. <laughs> So it's pretty goofy, especially considering, like, you know, if you go back to that rumor about Carrie Fisher and Sissy Spacek, like, Carrie Fisher was age-appropriate. She was 19. Sissy Spacek, mm -hmm. I think, was almost 25. I was going to um, say, she was mid-20s, right? Yeah, she did this? so yeah. it is kind of funny, but that, that <laughs> was a thing that happened. Um, one thing that I found really funny, while reprimanding one girl, Betty Buckley calls this character Katie, and she responds to it, but through the remainder of the film, it is established that this person's name is Helen. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what happened there. <laughs> Everyone's calling everyone the wrong name in this movie. Yeah. Katie, Helen, I don't, you know. Katie, Helen, <laughs> Amy, Sue. <laughs> Um, a PG-13 version of the shower scene was filmed uh, for the purposes of, like, anticipating it being able to run on TV. Um, so if you caught it on TV, that's the version you'll see. You can also find it on YouTube. And I I don't think I actually realized, because I originally, like, watched the movie on AMC, that there was, that that was sort of, like, the mm -hmm. special version. Like, yeah. I just remembered them being in Taos. And then at some point, I obviously watched it, like, I don't, when I bought it for myself or whatever. And it was just like, I oh my God, my original so many titties. Yeah, I think my original memory of that is with the towels. Yeah. And then later I'm like, oh, this is like going to turn into something else. Right? <laughs> like when you see like how like sort of sensual it is. Well, um, yeah. I mean, like as soon as we like sort of get into the locker room, there's like this woman and she's full bush in the screen. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Been around and I'm just like, wait, what? I've um, never seen this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
everything uh the on the the carry side of things though of course just to know anytime we're on spacek uh it was a close set like no one else yes yeah she she filmed uh her nude scenes by herself yeah um i thought this one was funny so when they are when carrie's in her dress and her mom comes up to her and this is a line from the movie where she says like oh it would be red but the dress is pink yeah so sissy spacek just ad libs it's pink like that was an ad lib that was not in the script so i don't know if somebody like fucked that up and forgot to like fix it because the, in the book the dress is red and she says in the book you know she remarks and i'd be like oh of course it's a red dress but um you know sissy spacek was just like it's pink <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the conversation like like piper Lori doesn't even like respond to the like doesn't even acknowledge that she said this she just goes into her next line it's going <laughs> um which i found to be funny i think that works actually like because yeah. we could interpret it as like carrie's starting to find a voice She's yeah back. her mom's crazy yeah um, and maybe it's even a some slight foreshadowing because the dress will end up red yeah um, which I think, you know, I imagine that's probably the point visually. It probably looked a little bit, you know, it's better to have to go in with a sort of lighter color and then have it sort of like become a red dress, essentially. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you've got the whole it's Carrie's innocence that is then tarnished, blah, blah, blah. Um, we mentioned the final shot is filmed backwards, but um, the last little fun bit is the book that Carrie picks up in the library, The Secret Science Behind Miracles by Max Freedom Long, is a real book published in 1948, and that's a real page that she reads from it. Um, so. About the telekinesis and all that. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Dude. So much like the novel, um, the film was a, a a success. It was released on November 3rd, 1976. Um, ag again, there have been a couple of movies we've talked about. I think that's such a curious release date. Weird timing. Um, <laughs> it's weird timing. It's one, uh, not at prom season. Um, <laughs> two, it, two, it is right after Halloween. <laughs> I wonder... Um... Was there something they didn't want to compete with? Like, I'm looking at what was released in October. And the only thing I really recognize, Marathon Man was in there. Okay. The Smurfs and the Magic Flute. I don't I think mean, that it was... Sounds like they should have rolled the dice. Cause... No, there was really nothing... I wonder if there were things that were, like, expected to be. Yeah. Because like, I'm not seeing a ton, a ton in here very curious very curious um but in the end it really didn't matter because uh carrie pulled in 33.8 million against that um 1.8 million dollar budget we were talking about earlier which gives it a 32 million dollar profit uh very successful positive reviews um of which uh that was the majority um said that uh it was scary, said that it was um, a good adaptation. Roger Ebert called it an absolutely spellbinding horror movie. Paul Keel from the New Yorker called it the best scary funny movie since Jaws. Interesting. Yeah. Um, he, 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 he got what they were, he picked up what they were putting down in some of those performances. 
He sure did. He sure did. I think the since Jaws is funny because this came out a year after Jaws. Yeah, I don't I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Quentin Tarantino ranks it as his eighth favorite film. Um, there, are, of course, were some negative reviews. That's pretty much always the case. One of those was the uh, review in The Village Voice from um, critic Andrew Saris, who wrote that there are so few incidents that two extended sequences are rendered in slow motion, as if to pad out the runtime. While George Siskel, Ebert's counterpart, was not a fan and called Carrie a crude shocker with little style. Um, I don't agree. <laughs> Um, and I think the slow motion was a stylistic choice not to pad out the runtime. Yeah. But uh, to each their own. Yeah. And uh, as of now, uh, Carrie has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 93%, a Metacritic rating of 86, an IMDb rating of 7.4, and a Letterbox rating of 3.9 out of 5. Yes, 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 yes. So, um, yeah, we've touched on a couple things about um, how Carrie has sort of been analyzed and approached um, since its release, both the novel and the film. Um, there's probably not a lot of new ground we can bring to that discussion because it has been, what, 50 years something like that it's coming it'll be coming up on that but i think we can hit on some of the big ways people have um interpreted themes from the film and analyzed the film um you want to get us started on some of those discussions sure and i think it's worth in just today's day and age with the state of like women's health and everything around you know everything that goes on with a uterus um you know that one of the defining themes of the film and the book is the taboo around like menstruation and women's periods um you know like you're told to keep it a secret like i remember when i was a teenager and even like now like you always are like ah, nobody can know that i'm on my period like you you sort of hide right. the tampons and when you're like um unwrapping them and they're in the loudest fucking plastic you're like trying to be like chill like i remember in high school i would wait till somebody like flush the toilet if somebody else was in the bathroom and, and yeah and then just quick rip it open <laughs> even though like we all like you know it's you know we're all at some point going to be on our periods like but like that's the feeling and like you know the amount of like situational comedy that's like you know, somebody's talking about their period and the dad like is like, oh, I don't want to hear it. It was so gross. And like that sort of thing, um, you know, and, you know, it's the, you know, it's a, a funny joke and like, you know, the butt of like a lot of like, you know, humor in that regard. But like, that's basically like what the movie, you know, is, you know, expanding on is like, you know, this this girl who was never taught about her period because her mom's like a religious fanatic and like that is kind of where this goes back to like ultimately like leviticus they talk about like a woman on her period like cannot be clean and like anyone who comes in contact with her is also unclean like if i sat in chair and you came and sat in that chair 
you'd have to like go to the desert for seven days <laughs> and you know purify yourself and that sort of thing um you know but it's based in like you know obviously what karen goes through in the shower is like the plug it up thing is like comically over the top like nobody's nobody's yeah. gonna do that to you but it's like you know the essence of it is true um you know and i also love these stories where it's like and i think about this with werewolf stories a lot because it's such a obvious metaphor for periods to me and it's mm -hmm. used sometimes in things um i yep. think some of our more it famous is, werewolf is. yeah our like more famous werewolf stuff is like yeah teen wolf and that sort of thing but it's like you know when a girl gets her period like then her in this case psychic powers kick in at the same time like it's a you know it's like a form of puberty and like in this case it's like the a play on like oh yeah women become monsters when they're on their period and they're like i can't deal with you and it's oh why are you acting this way is it your time of the month and again like carrie insane version of this and also a little bit justifiable like you know we were talking about like it feels like what ultimately ends up happening is like yeah like good for her like she needs help she's not okay but good for her and like you know it's sort of like a justified like you know she became what you know people would thought she would become or you know people said she was or you know like what people say like what any woman is um you know and right. it's just she's, yes yeah and she's it's made just, into a monster by the people around her exactly like yeah. and it's by the you know like because we see like oh yeah she's coming out of her shell like you know she's talking with tommy maybe it can become a thing and then like you know she not only reverts back into her old you know sort of like scared self but she like turns into something completely different um right you know and it's it's very interesting especially to see you know like it coming from you know stephen king you know wrote the book you know he's a man coming from men who directed it and wrote the screenplay um and just you know being able to have that awareness of like you know whether they intended or not like yeah like this is kind of like um you know an interesting you know meditation on what teenage girls go through um carrie yeah. getting her first period at 17 is very late but yeah whatever <laughs> um yeah and maybe there could maybe there's something there like that's meant yeah. to another like physical like almost manifestation yeah. of mother repressed her as yeah because like they even her. i think comment on that some people are like oh yeah like she's 17 like what you know yeah so. and i think i've seen some stuff that like maybe it actually wasn't carrie's first period but that she's has been so traumatized that she's like forgotten mm -hmm. she's had a period before right uh, but um yeah and you know i think it's all it's very you know, even like, you know, on the surface level, anyone can look at this and say like, yeah, this girl's being tortured and, you know, this movie's, you know, a tragedy, you know, watching a tragedy unfold and very scary. And then also there are those layers of like, you know, in some way, this is like real life for a lot of women um, who are in situations where, you know, they're forced to, to, to hide their periods or, um, you know, grew up in religious households that treated things like that sort of with a sort of fundamentalist lens and 
you know, even people who didn't, who just see on TV, you know, people making fun of women being on their periods and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, and the association that it's somehow dirty, mm-hmm. unclean, and, you know, and there's a there's a lot of that I remember in the novel of, like, Carrie, um, the people around her, like, linking her to pig imagery, and then, you know. The, right, the yeah, because it's, it's pig's blood that they, they throw on, like, it's not even, you know it's like, you know, pigs are like the unclean animal, you know, they're, they're gross. They, they run around in the mud and yeah. Yeah. And then it's, you know, that's, that's, you know, we begin, we begin with blood, we end with blood and that it's all sort of like this idea of dirty blood, right. You know, like something, something unclean about it all. Um, Yeah. Which I think ultimately the story condemns that notion. Yeah, no, I, I very much think that it's portraying like, you know, it as a, tra- you know, a, as a tragedy on the side of like Carrie, like, yeah, look at this horrible thing this person is going through and, you know, recognizing that it's like rooted in something societal um, that is, you know, equally unkind. Yeah, very much so. Um, and then and the the movie doesn't do this because it just sort of just doesn't have the time and it doesn't work with the way the movie is told versus how the novel is told. But like, um, you know, Sue also survives the events mm-hmm. of, of prom night in the book, but then she becomes like Carrie. She like everyone mm-hmm. in the town turns on her and everyone who survived in the town and everyone who's heard about the tragedy, like, turns on sue and now she is the outcast much as carrie was so there's this idea that that like society's always going to turn on like woman as an idea you know the scapegoat you know there always needs to be a scapegoat and what better than a young woman um yeah really interesting um (laughs) I think, and I definitely think Carrie is much more of like a, um, you know, you we, we've got the like kind of subgenre of horror of like revenge porn, mm-hmm. uh, like Last House on the Left gets into that territory eventually, or you know, like things like I Spit on Your Grave and all of that. Um, but I th- and. I've seen people call Carrie that, but I think it's more apt that Carrie is like a revenge tragedy. Yeah. You don't even really feel good about it. Like you never get the moment to be like, yeah, like great. Like you got them. Cause it's like everything that happens, like didn't need to happen. And yeah, you know, and watching like friend and foe alike go down too with like Miss Collins um, and like Sue is in the crosshairs as well. Yeah, and is clearly going to be like traumatized for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. What happened? Um, and because we don't get a sense necessarily that like this is consciously what Carrie wanted, because she's reacting like a hurt animal, and you know she goes home and she cries, and she's not she's not empowered anymore. There's not a hope of her like maybe sort of like escaping what she was and then everything that happens at home happens. And so it's like, yeah, there's not, we're not feeling good about this because we know that Carrie's not feeling good about it. Right. 
All right. Um, so yeah, so let's maybe talk about um, one good scare as it reg regards Carrie. What's the moment that really freaks us out from this movie? Um, this, uh, you know, Carrie gets put on a fair amount of lists of mm -hmm. scariest horror films and moments. Uh, I think it was in Shudder's top 20 for the, mm -hmm. the they did last year. I think for me, the one that sticks with me is the scene at the end after her mother dies and she's like instantly remorseful and like upset. And as the house is coming down, she, you know, she pulls the knives and like pulls her mom off the wall and kind of, you know, you know, they, they huddles them together in the closet, you know, that she is often forced into. Um, Cause I think for me, like, that's just, that's so sad. And like obviously there's parts of this movie that are scary, but like that's just so sad to you know that she you know you know she came home from this horrible night and wanted just to be at home with her mom and you know comforted by her mom, and this is what ended up happening um like I just find it sad, yeah, that is very, very sad um. And I know that it's probably a bit cliche, but I think like the prom sequence. Mm -hmm. you know just like as you know as, the, as she locks the doors and sort of like goes about this like chaotic yet still systematic way of just like unleashing everything on everyone that's there and it, it's sort of all of these like innocent or quasi-innocent bystanders and, and no one is no one is safe no one is spared um mm -hmm. and you know, when we as the viewer sort of know that like Carrie has maybe misinterpreted what has actually happened or who was laughing at her and that element of tragedy just yeah. adds to the sequence. Yeah. So next up, we, um, we've got the view from the closet, thinking about how the film can be viewed from an LGBTQ plus lens. Um, we talked a little bit about the opening sequence having a very central quality to it. Mm -hmm. There's obviously some uh, male gaze, I think, going on there by the nature of who made this movie. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also a a sapphic sort of quality to the yeah. that. Um, and I also know that there's debates about Miss um, Collins sure yeah you know, as people talk about her being like you know is she you know which you know who among us has not had the lesbian gym teacher um right you know it is a it's both a trope but also like i definitely in high in in elementary school had a lesbian gym teacher like i know that for <laughs> <a fact. laughs> um, right all stereotypes it, come from an element of truth right you know so um you know, there is that, and I know that there's debate about that, and people, you know, talk about that, and, you know, personally, I don't really think that either way it adds anything. Um, yeah, it's not. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, like, there's not too much there, just because it is so focused on the coming of age and, like, the sort of sexual awakening, if you will, of a, what appears to be a heterosexual, um, young woman i mean i guess you know she 
if she was gay, she wouldn't even, you know, that wouldn't have ever been an option. Yeah. I don't even think if she doesn't, if she didn't know about menstruation, like, is there any hope that she would have known sort of about like other sexualities or how to determine that about herself? Who knows what maybe Carrie could have discovered if things turned out better. I feel like there's got to be a space on the internet that really ships like Sue and Carrie. Probably. In some fucked up weird. And I say that because there's no way Carrie could ever have a functional relationship. And there's no way Sue is ever okay after this. No. Um, Well, and Carrie has always been sort of like, like adopted by the LGBT community. Like, um, I think more so because of like being able to identify with like themes of ostracization and othering. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just like, you might be one of us, girl. Yeah. (laughs) So. Um, Shall we move into our last segment and talk a little bit about legacy, legacy? What is a legacy? Sure. Yeah. Take it away. Sure. So, as we alluded to, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie were both nominated for Academy Awards uh, for Woo! Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively, um, for their roles here. They did not win. I don't know who won that year, but it seems like something you might know. Potentially. Um, in addition to that, Piper Laurie was also nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture. Again, did not win. Um, they would go on to win some small, like smaller, like critic, critic awards and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Entertainment Weekly ranked this as the 15th best high school movie of all time. Uh, Empire had it as 86th out of 500 of the greatest films of all time, mm-hmm. and the prom scene was ranked as eighth on Bravo's list of 100 scariest film scenes of all time. Nice. In 2022, oh, what were you saying? I was going to say, I checked Shutters. They mm-hmm. put it at 19. 19. So top um, 20. Yeah. Uh, Sissy Spacek lost Best Actress that year to Faye Dunaway and Network. Okay. And Piper Laurie lost Supporting Actress to Beatrice Strait, also from Network. Okay. I mean, you know, it's just, just to hear Oscar-nominated film Carrie is like, I think maybe a surprise to many people because you think of the Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs when you think of Oscar nominated for. Hey, but there's some other ones in there. Yeah. Um, in 2022, the film was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. Um, it also appears on the AFI list of 100 Years, 100 Thrills at number 46. And Carrie White was nominated for the list for 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains as a villain. Um, she didn't ultimately make the final cut not um, a true villain yeah would... you know that's tough um yeah. there were many copycat films that released not long after this came out um including 1978's the initiation of sarah about mm-hmm. a young woman with telekinetic abilities bullied uh by a college sorority also in 1978 was jennifer which is about a private school outcast who has psychic abilities over snakes and the tagline for that movie was actually, compared to this, Carrie was an angel. I don't think that's true. Oh. Um, 
1981, there was Evil Speak, which centered around um, a bullied military cadet who could summon demons with his computer. Um, in 1982, the actually sort of like satirical film Zapped, which was sort of satirizing yeah. this, this whole genre, uh, was about a high school nerd who uses powers gained from a lab accident to get revenge on his bullies. Um, and then even in 1987, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, <laughs> about a teenage girl possessed by the vengeful spirit of a former prom queen. Um, we're That's all awesome. sort of post-carry films yes, yes. Um, and then uh, the film got a sequel in 1999 called the rage carry Two, um directed by cat shea and starring emily burgle jason london dylan bruno jay smith cameron amy irving who reprised her role from the first film and was the only one who did so uh was also in this um Anyone else followed- was yeah, everyone else wants to. It's like Twin Peaks, like every every few months, like another Twin Peaks actor is like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, the film followed Carrie's previously unknown half-sister, um, <laughs> who was raised in foster care, um, who also possesses telekinetic powers and uses them to get revenge on football players who sort of sexually exploit her. Um, it currently holds a 23% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So I don't think it's 70% really... low. Yeah. I'm not sure it's worth uh, much, much time spent watching it, but it does exist. Um, in 2002, the film was remade uh, with a script written by Brian Fuller, directed by David Carson, starring Angela Bettis as Carrie. Um, it was very poorly received by critics and audiences, and its intended TV series sequel was canceled before it even really did too much. They wanted to do a TV show, too. Ooh. Yeah. And then uh, in 2013, another remake was put out into the world, uh, starring Chloe Grace Moritz as the title character, which I actually think was fairly good casting, although... Looking back on it, I think she kind of has gotten typecast. Um, yeah. So now looking back on it, it's a little less of like inspired casting because it's like, oh yeah, of course. But at the time, I thought it was a good choice. Um, but um, this version was better received and was commercially successful, but it was ultimately deemed inferior to the original and unnecessary. Um, and one of my favorite tidbits, if you can find the graph of this, it's fucking hilarious. The popularity for the baby name Carrie absolutely tanked after the movie <laughs> came out. <laughs> um, it's truly like you watch it and like towards the end of the 70s, it's just like a sheer cliff. Oh my, I didn't even think about the effect that, that would have had. Um, it was <laughs> previously, so like when the movie came out, it was the 67th most popular baby name for girls. Ten, within 10 years after the films were released, it was the 226th. <laughs> and as of 2022, it was the 4,592nd most popular baby name for girls. Yeah. So um, it's pretty that. funny. Because you look and you're like, damn, I wonder what happened in like late 70s. <laughs> like, because it's just a true, like, it's like a, it, it's like a cliff. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if any name would have been like more affected negatively than Carrie. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Aw. I think it's time to, that we could reclaim it. Yeah, I think Carrie's a fun name. I'm willing to willing to see that and brought it's, back. It's not her fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, of course, like Carrie, Carrie remains like you know, lauded and loved, and mm -hmm. showing up on lists still all the time, and it's great. It's you know, rewatching it for the episode, it's like, it's one of those ones where like it's so like kind of lovely to look at and like well made and well acted, but like it's not necessarily fun. Yeah, um, it's not like a party movie. But it is, it's a great movie. Yeah. So um, we'll get ready to close things out on um, on the Bates High Prom. But uh, I'm going to finish up with a, a closing question for you. And that is, if you could take any horror icon to prom, who would you ask? interesting is this fictional or non is it like whatever whatever could be a character could be a famous performer could be a director the first thing that pops into my mind is um uh kirby Nice. I think that would be an absolute blast. I don't even know if she's considered a horror icon, but um, I yes. think that would be a fun time. Um, we'd have a great time at prom. Um, I'm like reaching into the depths of my like. Is there an obvious one I'm missing? I mean, Kirby's solid, you know, yeah. and she like she'd be like rattling off like prom night quotes and stuff. Yeah, she'd have a flask, like it would be. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, I initially I went ridiculous and I thought Vincent Price. Oh, you know, that would be kind of <laughs> and I Could just you imagine I him strolling in in his top hat and his three piece. Right. And he probably have like a cloak and like doing something weird. And but then like if you're going a more fun angle, I I'd ask Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, yeah. I, no, that could be she would be fun. I think she'd be fun. I think she would dance. She would definitely be over the top too, I think. Yeah, she'd be over the top. She'd be like out there doing the Cupid shuffle and all that. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be a good time. Yeah, that would be good too. Well, unless there's anything we've missed, I think it's time to lay the stones on Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> and a happy and prom season to all. To those happy prom are. season to all. Um, if we have any high school chatterers out there, have a lovely prom season. Be safe. Mm -hmm. um, let us know how it goes. There's a couple ways you can do that. Miss Mel, take it away. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. You can leave us a comment on the blog at splatterchatterpodcast.com. Splatterchatterpodcast.com. I will eventually. I just like finally learned the old one. Let me find um, 
snag the dot You can <laughs> send us an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com where when she gets back from from across the pond, Miss Colleen will will get right to those those ask box ask box messages. That's right. And uh, we'll see you again in June for episode 110, Shatterers. But for now, we uh, want to remind you to keep up the creep, and we will say au revoir, adios, das verdammt.